Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about Kernza. We have three guests on the podcast today. Can you each give us a quick introduction? Yeah, hi, Paul. My name is Jake Youngers. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics here at the University of Minnesota. My name is Jared Goplin. I'm an extension educator in crops with the University of Minnesota Extension based out of the Morris Regional Office. And I guess pertinent to this discussion, uh, have actually had a couple of on-farm trials on our farm in Western Yale Medicine County as well. And I'm Brad Hines. I'm an associate professor of uh, animal science located at West Central Research and Outreach Center in Morris, Minnesota. Great. So starting off, what is Kernza and why should farmers consider growing it? Well, Kernza is on track to becoming the world's first perennial grain crop. And there are a lot of good reasons for why farmers might want to consider growing it. Um, One set of reasons relates to the environment and ecosystem services. So as a perennial crop, there are a number of environmental benefits associated with it. Uh, It has a deep, dense root system, which really helps foster soil health. It can support uh, microbial diversity in the soil and does great things for the, the physical attributes of the soil. Um, and because it's perennial, it doesn't get tilled every year, uh, which also results in some environmental and soil health benefits. It's a grass crop that uses nitrogen, and it's actually a good crop for capturing and utilizing nitrogen that's existing in the soil before it reaches waterways. So it can be used as sort of a nitrogen sink uh, in certain areas of the state where nitrogen pollution is an issue. The deep dense root system also can support carbon sequestration. There's still a lot of research going on around that uh, about how much carbon can actually be sequestered. Uh, the, The jury's not quite out yet on it, but there's a lot of potential there. And that's something that we're studying other environmental benefits that haven't really been studied too much yet, but we, we think there's a lot of potential there for, include wildlife habitat. And some of our uh, on-farm partners who grow Kernza have actually pheasant hunted in the Kernza fields and have done, done pretty well. So there's a lot of uh, potential there to support wildlife habitat. It's also economically viable if the grain markets are, are solid and mature, um, and that process is undergoing. So the grain market right now uh, is, is pretty good in terms of that there's a lot of demand for the grain. And the, the price of the grain has a premium because of these environmental benefits. Consumers are willing to pay a little bit more for this because it, it provides these environmental benefits. So you'll see this right now in um, a lot of like specialty products uh, in the organic market um, at at local food co-ops and that sort of thing. So it's starting off as sort of a, in like the niche markets, but the plan is for it to expand. And I think um, consumers will start to see this in a broader range, range of products in the near future from some of the bigger companies like General Mills and, and whatnot. Um, but that said, it, uh, it's, it's valuable and farmers can, can make some money off of selling the grain. It's also low input. So as we'll talk about, there's a lower uh, nitrogen fertilizer requirements for it, uh, just less inputs in terms of management, in terms of tillage, seed costs, uh, herbicides. 
So there's uh, that environment or economic benefit. And then also we'll talk about the dual use potential. There's an opportunity to get a couple of different revenue streams from one single Kearns of field. I guess one of the things that Jake had mentioned, uh, really a key word is new. <laughs> you know, it's pretty hard to develop a new crop. Um, you know, and really I think that's that's where a lot of the efforts uh, with this program have gone in. And because, you know, you can produce a new crop, but if there's no demand, there's no point in doing that. So, you know, there is a number of folks that have been working, you know, in Minnesota and elsewhere, trying to develop those external markets and really you know, trying to tap into that value-added market. And I know that's one of the issues, um, you know, like a couple of the, uh, the trials, you know, we've really just grown it on a trial basis on our, on, you know, a couple of different trials for us. But um, so it's only an acre, a couple of acres, um, but, you know, it was in, not in a certified organic setting, which, you know, at this point, you know, in the markets, you know, obviously there's, there's some, some added demand there in the organic markets compared to, you know, just the conventional. So, you know, that is one of the, one of the considerations, I guess, for any of these things as you, you know, look to, to try new crops, you know, obviously you got to get a, a market figured out before you, you know, plant you know, hundred acres of this stuff, which, you know, which I think, you know, for the most part, uh, I think uh, folks working with Kearns have done a good job, but, but it is a challenge, I guess, ongoing. What do we know about Kearns' soil fertility needs? So Kearns, as I mentioned, uses nitrogen. It's, it's a, it's a nitrogen hungry crop in a way. Um, it produces a lot of biomass. So right now, grain yields are low relative to annual crops, about 20% of the yield of wheat, the grain yield. Um, but intermediate wheatgrass, the, the plant that produces Kernza, um, produces quite a bit of above ground biomass as well. So really it's, it's the harvest index that is quite a bit different from our annual grains. So there's a lot of nitrogen taken up by the plant and put into both the, the above ground biomass and the grain. Um, but we also have to remember, since it's a perennial, there's a large, deep, dense root system that also requires nitrogen. So that's one of the other reasons that the intermediate wheatgrass uses a lot of nitrogen to support that below ground rooting structure so that it can indeed be perennial year in and year out. So we know that there's all about 50 to 75 pounds of nitrogen in the above ground biomass per acre. So, you know, we need to at least replace that because all of that's typically removed. Um, after the grain harvest, we typically harvest the straw as well. That just promotes more uh, uniform growth in the future in years two, three and beyond. So we recommend removing all of the straw and there's again about 50 to 75 pounds of nitrogen in that straw. So we should at least replace that. And we know though that the root system can mine and find nitrogen that's already existing in the soil in areas that annual crops can't because of those deep dense roots. So that's really tricky to measure and to know how much what we can call native nitrogen the soil can or that the intermediate wheatgrass can get from the soil. Um, but what we found through our research is that grain yields are maximized when we fertilize Kernza with between 60 and 80 pounds of nitrogen per acre. Now, when we exceed that 80 pounds of nitrogen per acre, we actually have uh, observed quite a bit of lodging in our previous studies. And this occurred because we were using older Kernza germplasm and genetics which were typically taller than some of the more modern germplasm, like the Minnesota Clearwater variety that's out on the market now. So 
we have to actually redo a lot of these nitrogen rate trials with the new uh, improved germplasm. So now that we know that the plants are going to be growing as tall and they might be less susceptible to lodging, we may be able to increase grain yields even more uh, by bumping up that nitrogen fertilizer rate, uh, probably somewhere in that 80 to 100 pounds per acre is what I think will be recommended um, after some of these trials are done. And another big question around this, the, the fertility is, when do we apply that nitrogen? Uh, we've done most of our application just in the spring at Greenup, but we've, we're doing some trials now looking at split application, applying some of that in the fall, um, some in the spring, and even some right after grain harvest, um, after that straw is removed. The intermediate wheatgrass goes through this vegetative fall regrowth. It produces biomass even after the grain's harvested. So giving the, the plants a shot of nitrogen then might better prepare them for grain production in the next year. So that's some research that's ongoing, but yeah, typically we're, we're right now recommending between 60 and 80 pounds of nitrogen per acre, kind of depending on how fertile the soil already is. Now, Jake, you had uh, kind of alluded to some of the yields in comparison to, you know, wheat, um, you know, how many, and, and obviously a big factor here is germplasm. You know, you've mentioned the varieties that are available. I mean, there's been huge gains I know main, made on the breeding side of things. So you know, as time goes on and there's more breeding gains, obviously yield's going to change, hopefully significantly. I know it has already. Um, some of the newer germplasm, I mean, how many pounds an acre have you been, been seeing on production scales? We are, that's a good point that you, that you mentioned pounds per acre and that we're measuring grain in pounds per acre right now. There's no consistent test weight. Um, and part of the reason is that the, when the grains harvested, a proportion of the seeds, the, the hulls still retained, uh, even during the combining process. And the proportion of seeds that retain the hulls varies from field to field, varies on the time that it's harvested, lots of different things. So we don't have a consistent test weight yet. Um, so we'll be referring to pounds per acre here. And um, in our experiments, in using our plot scale studies, we're seeing yields range from 1,000 to 1,200 pounds per acre. Um, but in real world environments, um, when we're harvesting with, with combines and, and whatnot, yields are somewhere between 400 and 600 pounds per acre. So we're, we're seeing a, quite a bit of a loss at this point. And some of the, those inefficiencies are related just to timing of harvest. So it's still, a wild plant in some ways and, and it, seed can shatter. So if growers are waiting too long to harvest the grain, um, some of it's gonna be lost to shattering and end up on the, on the soil surface. Harvesting too early can also lead to some other issues, um, not really related to yield, but more towards quality. Harvesting too early, we're getting wet grain and then we gotta deal with drying it down and, and mycotoxin issues and that sort of thing. Um, that's probably for another discussion, but yeah, so we're we're seeing about 600 pounds per acre uh, coming out of a lot of the fields in Minnesota. And then that seed needs to be cleaned, right, or dehulled, uh, correct, to go to the processing side of things. And then, you know, recent uh, price per pound, you know, just for guys that might be considering this on certain acres, you know, I know it had been like in the dollar per pound range. Is that kind of still ballpark where they're at for pricing or has that changed? I think it's a... It closer to two, um, and that's for even non-organic. Um, yeah, but a dollar, dollar to two dollars a pound in that range is a, is a good safe bet. 
We have a couple of ongoing trials related to looking at the response of intermediate wheatgrass to P and K fertilizers, uh, potassium and phosphorus, but we don't have any results from that yet. Um, it's going to be an interesting situation. Um, intermediate wheatgrass does form uh, relationships with uh, fungi that can't help access phosphorus. And so we're thinking that phosphorus might, might not be really a related or uh, phosphorus might not be a limiting nutrient in this system, but we're not sure. So we're doing the experiments. We're also interested to see if, if the availability of phosphorus in the soils actually affects how much nitrogen the wheatgrass can take up. And there's some complicated relationships there with the microbes in the soil and the plants. Um, but there are some, some reasons to believe that the level of uh, phosphorus in the soil might actually impact nitrogen uptake. So no results on that yet, but something that we're looking into. Uh, well, I guess, Jake, I was curious about if you had found anything, we were talking about nitrogen sources for Kernza and out here at Morris, a long time ago, we planted alfalfa with the Kernza and, you know, is that a viable option to do that, or does it not really have an effect on increasing nitrogen for, for Kernza? Yeah, we are wrapping up a study right now where we, we actually tried to track the amount of nitrogen transfer from the alfalfa to the intermediate wheatgrass and into the Kernza. Um, and we didn't see much transfer from alfalfa direct transfer of nitrogen from the fixation by the legume into the grain of the Kernza crop. Uh, now that was after about three years of production. So one reason might just be there, there really hasn't been enough time for that nitrogen to get mineralized into the soil and be in a form that the night that the Kernza can take it up. So we're going to extend these studies, continue these for, for further years. Um, so, but growing alfalfa with the Kernza in an intercropping system does have some other benefits, um, the forage quality benefits that, that we can talk about when we, we get into the dual use scenarios. Um, it also can provide weed suppression benefits, um, especially if we want to be growing the, the wheatgrass in wider rows, um, which seems to produce higher yields per plant when we grow them in wider rows. Um, but we know that those wider rows can be, can cause issues for weeds, but filling that row space in with alfalfa is an op option that would, um, could potentially eliminate the weed pressure or, or reduce the weed pressure while still providing that benefit of the wider row spacing. For our organic producers, what nitrogen sources are suitable for production? A lot of the organic producers in the upper Midwest uh, growing Kernza, are looking to poultry manure for their nitrogen fertility needs. Um, there are a few places to access and find that in Minnesota um, for the production scale. Uh, other options include ammonium sulfate, um, which is a mined uh, product from caves with, that have bats, bat guano. And then the legume intercropping is really the other way to go for, for organic production. So growers interested in transitioning to organic production, they're, they have this, this challenge of managing their land organically for three years 
without being able to sell the crops organically and then not getting that premium, which is pretty challenging. So one thing that growers can do during that process is look for high value crops that don't require that organic certifi certified premium. Uh, and Kearns is, is one of those where the, yeah, the value of the grain is, is pretty high just because of those environmental benefits without that organic certification. And it's also a relatively easy crop to grow for that three-year period. Um, being a perennial, you know, it only requires purchasing seed once during that transition period. Um, it's a great way to build soil health and kind of prepare that land, those fields for longer term organic production. Uh, as the intermediate wheatgrass ages, the stands actually get thicker and more dense, which is one of the reasons why grain yields decline as the stands age. And we can talk a little bit about that later too. Um, but the benefit of that getting denser and thicker with stand age is that uh, it's really does a pretty good job of suppressing weeds. So in that three year period, this is a good opportunity to build that soil health bring the seed seed bank down a little bit without any chemicals and kind of prepare for organic production. Ours actually, we was, was organic or is, is now certified organic. You know, we had transitioned during that time period. And I would agree with Jake that we see a lot less weed pressure in our uh, Kernza that we have now. And it's six, five years old, you know, that, that we're, we're, a little bit older uh, stand, but um, the stand has filled in and uh, a lot less weeds now than what there used to be. So, uh, and it's, and it's organic what we're doing now. So it's still worked out. Can you expand a little bit on that legume intercropping? Um, why is that a good option? Yeah, definitely. So the, these legumes are fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere and bringing them to different plant parts, including the, the nodules and in, down in their roots. Uh, and that nitrogen that's in the plant parts after those plants kind of senesce or, or uh, go dormant in the winter, that um, those legume tissues can then get decomposed and the nitrogen that's in those legume tissues is made available to any other plant or microbe that's in the soil. So it's really a nice way to recycle nitrogen that's from the atmosphere where it's typically unavailable for grasses um, and get that into the soil and make that available for a grass crop or a grain crop like the wheatgrass, the Kernza. Um, but it's tricky to, to make happen uh, effectively. And one of the challenges is you gotta find a legume that will grow and persist in a stand of intermediate wheatgrass or Kernza. So the, the timing of like the, the, the growth patterns has to be aligned in a way so that the wheatgrass doesn't choke out the legume. Um, and you also don't want the uh, opposite to happen where the legume gets is too aggressive and chokes out the Kernza or intermediate wheatgrass. So you have to find uh, a legume species that can coexist or live with the wheatgrass and not just for the first or second year, but ideally for three to four years. Um, so that's one, one issue is finding the right species. Another kind of issue and challenge that we're working on is figuring out the right planting configuration. So what should be the row spacing for the wheatgrass? How much space should we leave in between the rows for the legumes? 
how much legume seed should be planted within that space, how dense should the legume population be. And sometimes we can get really nice configurations that work where you have a really nice stand of Kernza and alfalfa coexisting for many years. Um, but in that situation, maybe the stand isn't thick enough for the alfalfa or the legume to actually get any nitrogen transferred to the wheatgrass. So just because they're coexisting and living happily together might not, doesn't necessarily mean that there's nitrogen transfer occurring. So we have a lot of experiments going on right now. It's actually one of the larger parts of the research program is looking into this legume intercropping. We're screening many different types of legumes. We're looking at different configurations, growing these in different environments, which is really important too, knowing that the precipitation and temperature conditions really alter that balance of the two species in a field. Um, we're also looking at fertilizing, actually adding some nitrogen to these systems. So um, maybe there's, we can get a really nice stand of alfalfa and intermediate wheatgrass to coexist. We know that there's not a whole lot of transfer occurring, but what if we add a little bit of nitrogen? So Jared's on, on this project and it's a uh, one that's in partnership, it's led by Cornell and uh, in partnership with the University of Wisconsin and the Land Institute down in Kansas. Uh, and it's looking at just that, looking at different varieties, intercropping different varieties of alfalfa with the intermediate wheatgrass and looking at how they, the two respond when we add some different nitrogen rates to the intercropping mixtures. I guess one of the things I'll add with the intercropping is, you know, it's just more challenging to manage two crops in the same field. Um, you know, this year with alfalfa, there was alfalfa weevils uh, issues just terribly um, in much of Minnesota. And then grasshoppers were also problematic, which, you know, this year, you know, the, at least the one field that we still have uh, established with Kernza in it, um, you know, that one is interseeded with alfalfa and then, and then uh, red, red and white clover, I believe. Um, but with the alfalfa weevils and then the grasshoppers that moved in, it pretty much decimated the legume. And actually some of the grasshoppers really fed on some of the, the kerns are pretty well too. So, um, you know, managing that, there's really no, no way to manage that. I mean, obviously there's no insecticides used uh, or, or labeled for, for production of grain, uh, kerns of grain. Um, so, you know, that's off the table. And then if you're in an organic setting, you couldn't have done that anyway. So that means cutting is kind of your management strategy that usually works pretty well, but if you're going to harvest the grain, that doesn't necessarily work all that well. So, you know, you know, this year, you know, basically the legumes were toast, you know, there was nothing there until, until we finally, uh, you know, basically the, the, the grain was ready to harvest. And then in our case, we, we actually bailed up the, the forage at that time, you know, after, you know, some yield checks were taken and whatnot, but, but it is challenging to manage both of those crops at the same time um, when you have some of these pest issues that pop up. So. Yeah, can you talk a little more about uh, Kearns' potential to be used as a dual-use crop? Yeah, I think this is the dual-use potential of Kernza is really an economic safety net for those considering growing Kernza. And I think it's really key to the potential profitability at this stage, um, knowing that the market for the grain is, is still evolving and still growing and the price is still changing a little bit. Um, the dual use potential is really key. So this is uh, kind of how it works. Intermediate wheatgrass is a forage grass. It was introduced to the US as a forage crop in the early 20th century. 
and you can look up um, different varieties of intermediate wheatgrass for forage use. There's many varieties that the USDA released for different environments, um, Intermountain West, uh, Southeast United States. There's varieties specific to those different regions. So it has a long history of being used as a forage crop um, really in pasture mixes. And it has high forage, relatively high forage quality, depending on the timing of harvest, it can produce a lot of biomass. Um, so it's got these good attributes. Now thinking about how to use it in a dual use system. Well, the intermediate wheatgrass is a cool season grass. So it starts growing really early in the season. Uh, we see the, the regrowth coming out of the winter starting in late March, early April. And that regrowth starts with just leaves. It's just vegetative growth um, up until about mid-May. And it'll produce really lush vegetation. Um, that leafy material in the spring has a pretty high crude protein. Um, yields are a little bit lower. So let's say we take it up, let it regrow until mid-May. Um, at that point, the, the stand can either be grazed or it could be hayed. And as I mentioned, it's got high crude protein, um, but yields are a little bit lower because that's still pretty early in the year. So we're talking about maybe a thousand pounds of biomass per acre. Um, after that point, the, the plant starts its process of stem elongation. So it starts to send up the, heat, the seed head. And it's critical then at that point that it's not cut or grazed after that mid-May stem elongation point. Because if that happens, the seed head is then consumed or removed and there's no grain yield. So the first window is that kind of April to mid-May opportunity to graze or, or harvest. Then it's got to go through the reproductive phase um, and it flowers around, uh, well, let's see, it um sheds pollen around the fourth of july so that's kind of a key key point and then grain is ready to harvest mature and ready to harvest by late july early august and at that point all the, the grain gets harvested and all the straw we recommend removing because that plant is going to continue to regrow that that field will continue to regrow and it'll regrow only vegetatively until the winter. So again, just producing leaves, there's only one seed harvest per year. And that vegetative regrowth will continue all the way into, well, just about beginning of November, mid-November. Um, so there's an opportunity for another uh, either harvest or grazing. And at that point in late October, November, there's, probably 3,000 pounds, about 3,000 pounds of dry matter per, per acre. Um, lower forage quality, but not, not, not too bad. Um, we have some relative feed values we can share. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of completes the cycle. And then in the spring, regrowth begins. So if you step back, we have a spring uh, graze or harvest opportunity high quality, a little bit lower yield, a grain harvest in the summer, the straw is removed. The straw is very high yielding, um, probably four tons per acre. 
but very pretty low quality, higher quality than wheat straw, but it's more of like a straw it should probably be fed to dry cows or uses for bedding. Um, and then, so we got four revenue streams. Then the fourth is that late fall forage harvest. And we've done some research on looking at, well, of course, the yield and quality. I mentioned some of those attributes of that spring haying and the fall haying, so mechanical removal. Um, what we actually found was in the first couple of years of production, a spring haying uh, stimulated grain production. It actually increased grain yields compared to stands that were not hayed in the spring. So that's in a way a win-win if, if a grower can harvest that forage, sell it, utilize it, that actually increases grain yield compared to if they couldn't do that. Um, and then recently we started actually grazing the stands at these different times. And Brad can tell us about a trial that we conducted out at the West Central Research and Outreach Center. Yeah, so we, we did a, a few trials uh, when we started grazing it uh, as a dual use crop in 2017, 2018. So it's been a few years, but we did a spring mob graze just to see what would happen. And I think that probably set it back more than what we maybe thought it would um, as far as forage uh, production and seed production uh, into uh, into the year. However, um, we did some fall grazing on it and we compared uh, dairy heifers that were grazing uh, Kernza and alfalfa uh, compared to regular perennial pasture. And the the Kernza was, it was mostly Kernza and some alfalfa. It's sort of changed a little bit over the, the years, but we really found that there was no difference in average daily gain for the heifers that were grazing Kernza compared to perennial pasture. So they got the same growth on Kernza grazing in the fall than what we did compared to perennial pasture. And actually, we probably lasted a little bit longer on the Kernza. We were able to in the last few years, we've been able to graze Kernza well into November uh, because there's enough forage production after you harvest the, the grain uh, and the straw, it, it produces a lot of forage in the fall. Um, and we are able to graze a long time. And I think over the years that we've done this, we still continue. We have 14 acres of uh, Kernza alfalfa, the Fields are probably 60% Kernza, 40% alfalfa right now, you know, five years, six, almost six years after we planted it and we're still grazing it. It produces a lot of forage biomass, probably more now than what it did five to six years ago, just because it's an older stand that it's filled in a little bit. We don't really take it to grain anymore. We just use it as a perennial pasture uh, in Last summer during the drought, we actually let it grow. Uh, we harvested the straw. Uh, we didn't. We don't harvest the grain anymore. It's it is a little bit older uh, uh, and doesn't yield as well as the new new varieties. But we continue to graze it well into the fall. We were grazing milking cows on it uh, late October this year and providing plenty of forage and almost. It's almost 
you know, I wouldn't say it's an emergency forage, but it does well for us in our rotation where we can graze it late in the fall when the perennial pastures have slowed down. And for growers who are interested, where, where should they go for more information or next steps? Yeah, kernsa.org is a website that's kind of a, a landing page for all questions related to Kernza. There's a specific tab uh, on that webpage that says grower resources. So there's all kinds of resources, where to find seed, how to get a license. Uh, the We have a best management guidelines document that um, can help with basic agronomic information. There's also a section on dual use. Um, so that's in there. So kernza.org is really the place to go uh, right now. Great. Um, any last words from the group? So Brad alluded to this, um, in, integrating intermediate wheatgrass at Kearns into rotation um, is, is really critical. And, and I think it's good for growers considering Kernza to think about where it would fit into their rotation and where uh, spatially, you know, in their field as well. Uh, and one thing to consider is that the Kernza grain yields, they're really good in year one relative, you know, to the their potential. They're probably about 80 to 90% of their potential in year one, um, about 100% of their potential in year two. And then depending on the conditions, they either drop dramatically in year three um, or begin that drop in year three. So by year four, grain yields are 10 to 20% of potential. And we're doing a lot of research to figure out why that's happening and how we can prevent that from happening. Um, but in the meantime, we really want to make sure growers are, know this and that they're considering it and thinking through how they would rotate in and out of Kernza. So one option, and this is kind of what Brad's doing with the grazing system on at Morris, is to just turn that grain production field into a forage production field. And that, at that point, you can start taking uh, multiple cuttings or grazings in a, in a year um, and not worry about, you know, staying outside of that grain production window. So it can just turn into a forage crop. Um, another is have a plan on, on a crop that would follow it. And I would recommend a legume because the Kearns is really good at using nitrogen and following that with soybeans or field pea or some other legume um, or even like a forage legume alfalfa. So just uh, I think that's critical to think through how it would fit into rotation. Right now three years for grain production is what I'd, I'd think about um, and then yeah whether or not the forage can be utilized that will um, kind of influence a decision and in what's rotated in before and after the crop. Um, yeah, so those are some critical things to think through. Yeah, I guess to piggyback off of that, um, kind of the two small fields that we've had, the one was planted into what had been a uh, basically a perennial pasture, uh, basically got moldboard plowed and then planted kerns into that. And obviously in a perennial pasture, you got more perennials that are out there and, you know, thistles especially are, are a problem. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, very few, uh, herbicides labeled if you're in the conventional world and obviously organics uh, you got to control your weeds else you know a different way 
but one of the other fields we've got was put into what had been corn and soybean primarily for production, which, you know, that field is, is pretty clean. You know, there really wasn't any perennial weed issues there. Um, few, you know, common ragweed and things, but, uh, you know, after a year, you know, those perennials really outcompete it. So, you know, weed control, you know, really fitting it into the, you know, into some of those row crop acres, I think is, is a good idea. I mean, we knew it was a bad idea, uh, going into a perennial pasture without a break, just because, you know, you're going to have some of those issues and, you know, thistles are, are never, never fun. Uh, cows don't like to eat them either. So, um, but yeah, I think it does have a nice fit in certain acres, um, acres, especially in the, in the row crop world. I guess the other thing that I, I will, uh, I had thought about when we're talking about dual crop, uh, use, is uh, in regards to harvesting that forage, you know, a lot of guys have have uh, uh, axial combines now, or, or basically, you know, they don't have a conventional combine anymore. You know, like in Morris, uh, Brad, the 9500 there works pretty well. Um, you know, using a pickup head, you swath it, you use a pickup head, and, and you can run all that material through it pretty well. But you start running that stuff through a rotor, and it's going <laughs> to cause some problems. So, um, you know, guys that do have, uh, had a, have a rotor combine or, you know, anything like that, um, you know, thinking through how to harvest that straw, you know, you're probably going to have to go back through with a, with a swather or, um, you know, basically or a, a disc mine, something like that to actually mow it off. Um, you know, we've been toying around with direct cutting it, um, you know, and then basically doing that for the, the forage or the straw harvest, but, uh, but our, we just have that, you know, very small acreage. So in many cases, it's not worth our time to set up the combine, but, but it is, uh, you know, kind of a, a unique challenge there from an equipment standpoint as well. Absolutely. And if growers wanting who uh, might want to direct combine that, again, the, the seed shatters. So that means getting into the field a little bit earlier than you typically would, which means wetter grain in the combine and, and a need to, to dry that down. So, yeah, for those interested or thinking about direct combining it, I'd make sure you have some bin space available to dry that down to avoid any any mycotoxin issues. Um, last question: what, what what do you see as the future for Kernza research and uh, and production in in the next five to ten years and beyond? Well, here in Minnesota, we're going to continue to focus on a lot of these basic agronomic questions. Um, Fertility, row spacing, harvest timing, and techniques. Um, continue to do that sort of research just to, to make sure that the growers have the information they need to maximize profitability. Uh, we're going to continue with the dual use research as well. Um, continue to look into the grazing, um, less of the mechanical harvest, but more really into the grazing. We'd like to do more of that work. Uh, and in all of these experiments and all of this research, we're also documenting the environmental impacts. And we're going to continue to quantify those benefits so that, you know, in a system where a farmer might someday get paid for those environmental benefits, like carbon credits, we'll have some numbers to back up um, this system. So there's a lot of work going on with the carbon sequestration, but also water quality. And we have quite a bit more data on water quality benefits than any of the other environmental benefits. Uh, and that information is being put to use. So in these wellhead protection areas around the state of Minnesota, these are the areas where uh, most of the, the groundwater recharge occurs and then that feeds into public water supplies. Uh, many communities around the state are seeing elevated levels of nitrogen in their drinking water. And we've been doing a lot of research with Kernza to see if 
the, the amount of nitrogen that leaches through the, the Kernza is um, reduced compared to some of our annual row crops. And uh, after a few studies at many different locations in multiple years, we have really conclusive evidence that shows that nitrate leaching, nitrogen pollution is dramatically reduced beneath the Kernza field compared to a lot of our annual row crops. So the Department of Ag and Department of Health um, are now aware of the, these results and they're actually looking at ways to provide financial incentives for farmers to plant Kernza in these really sensitive areas, these wellhead protection areas. So that's another thing that potential growers should be aware of um, and look for those financial um, opportunities, those incentives. Uh, there, will, there should be some direct payments going out to growers to plant and grow Kernza in these wildlife protection areas. And Paul, I guess my response to that question is, like I tell a lot of farmers that I have questions about Kernza is, is breeding. I make references to breeding and the gains that have been made. You know, obviously, uh, you know, when I, when I started this job five years ago, um, you know, the yields were a lot worse than what they are now. Um, so there's been some significant gains. And I think as time goes on, it'll just, it'll just have a better fit as we get rid of some of the shattering issues, can maybe direct combine it. So you don't have to have the swather or, uh, you know, find a swather in somebody's grove to use. Um, but, you know, I think, I think as breeding uh, makes some improvements to the agronomic characteristics, I think uh, we'll have a lot more uh, suitable crop for a lot more acres. Great. All right. That about does it for the podcast. This week, we'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.